Hi everyone, my name is Andreas Feiner and I would like to welcome you to our podcast, Important Problems. Together with my wonderful guests, we will address urgent problems such as sustainability, nature and mental health and how we can tackle them. Our aim is to show you that everyone can solve important problems. Today we are meeting John Turner. John is the CEO of XBRL. XBRL is a market infrastructure everybody is benefiting from, but almost no one knows. XBRL is digitizing sustainability and financial disclosures so that investors can take better decisions, that regulators can regulate better, that people who buy in supply chains know what their suppliers are doing. So this is a really, really important infrastructure that he's building. Have fun in listening into what John has to say. Hi, John. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to this uh, Important Problems podcast. Um, could you please introduce yourself uh, to the audience? Hi, Andreas. Thanks very much for having me. My name's John Turner. Uh, for my sins, I run XBRL International, which is the global not-for-profit standards organization that sits behind the XBRL standards used mostly for regulatory reporting in a huge number of contexts. In effect, We're working to try to move the world from a paper paradigm in reporting to a digital data-based one. Uh, that's a long journey, uh, but it's uh, going pretty well right around the world. Excellent. So, so for everybody as a background, XBRL is uh, a mandatory reporting standard, um, at least in the US as far as I understand. Is that right, John? So the XBRL standard is used by regulators, about 137 different regulators in around about 70 countries. Uh, there's uh, more than 200 regulatory mandates right around the world in which regulators say, hey, we need this information from these regulated companies with this frequency. Uh, don't give it to us on paper, give it to us in a digital form and specifically use this open digital standard that has a broad ecosystem of uh, software, services, skills um, and know-how right around the world uh, that ensures that that information can be provided at, uh, with, with high quality and at a low cost. So regulators choose to use the standard because that enables them to improve the information that they receive, and some regulators receive information on a one-way basis. They might be central banks or insurance regulators. They collect information, uh, they analyse it, but they never let that information out of their organisation's uh, 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 four walls. There are many other regulators that collect information because they're disclosure regulators and they republish information. So think securities regulators, think business registrars. Uh, those kinds of functions are most visible probably within the securities regulation front. And indeed, uh, if you ask uh, somebody in business, oh, well, what do you know about XBRL? They say, oh, that's what we have to file to the SEC with, or that's the information sitting on the SEC systems. That's a digital format that I can consume. And that is pretty amazing. So the transparency that we all consume is largely dependent on this XBRL standard. So how did you come about to do this? You know, so what's your career trajectory? What gets you up in the morning? Can you, can you let us know about that? Uh, career tra trajectories these days are pretty diverse, and I don't think mine's any different. Uh, 
what gets me up in the morning? What gets me up in the morning is essentially the idea that uh, a whole group of people right around the world and, uh, and in a really broad spectrum of capacities can have better information to make better decisions with. And that's being a, an, a passion from, an early, an early, uh, uh, from the earliest part of my career. I started out life, uh, nothing to do with financial disclosures, but to do with digital disclosures, uh, digital disclosures in the legal space. Back in the 90s, I was working on a project that was digitising some of the Australian legal system, case law and, uh, and the legislation, in a manner that could be digitally searched. And first of all, that gave me a very early appreciation, this was pre-internet, uh, of the importance of structured data and the, the capabilities that provides. But it also provided uh, some early insights into the importance of quality uh, and the importance of understanding the ecosystem and appreciating everybody's input in that. If uh, many of the people on this, this podcast have probably come to this with a financial background, uh, try dealing with uh, high court judges that want to make sure that every letter of a uh, piece of uh, piece of uh, case law that they might have opined on is uh, rekeyed with 99.98% accuracy uh, and ensuring that that is the information that people can consume. Uh, so from an early uh, from an early part of my career, I was involved in in structuring information that moved uh, not in a particularly linear fashion, but before long into reporting. Uh, within a regulatory context, particularly prudential regulation, in a couple of different uh, agencies, uh, but uh, ending up in, at, at the Australian prudential regulator, where we were collecting information right across the country for every financial institution uh, in, that was regulated in that country, uh, and did so using a variety of technologies and in the end decided that we really needed to uh, have a single way of collecting information from banks, insurance companies, pension funds, those kinds of groups, uh, as well as smaller uh, regulated entities. So a really big spectrum of, of technological sophistication in that context. It turned out uh, two things were important in that environment. One, uh, we needed a standardised way to collect that information. And as it happens, there was this brand new standard called XBRL and Way back in, in uh, 2001, that was the first regulatory project to ever go live using that, that standard. A little bit like having the first fax machine, but for us, we would have had to invent something ourselves, so it, it was uh, perfectly sensible to be utilising this brand new standard. But actually, one of the more important aspects of that project uh, is something that you see in lots of different environments as well, which is that when you talk to the people that need to provide information, they don't really care about formats. Mm. They care about uh, what they have to report. And in that particular environment, they were concerned that they would provide very similar information to the prudential regulator, to the central bank, to the statistics agency, mm. but it was similar but slightly different. Every time you have similar but slightly different definitions for providing information to a regulator, two things happen. First of all, companies have to have multiple processes for, for dealing with it. And because of that, uh, at least some of the data quality will suffer. Mm -hmm. So the more that that information can be aligned, the better quality that information will be. Uh, so that was an interesting early lesson in, in my career. Um, 
I moved from that environment, from from regulation running data collection in uh, for a, a bunch of Australian financial institutions for mm-hmm. the regulator, to uh, over to a to a big four firm. I worked at KPMG, working on these kinds of problems, uh, including. Uh, working with a team of very talented technologists, many of whom were involved in helping devise the the, uh, the first aspects of the mm-hmm. of the XBRL standards, uh, and after a while, moved into a different role. I was I, I uh, co started a uh, co founded a startup in uh, two thousand and five. Uh, worked in that context for a number of years, mm-hmm. uh, and and then eventually in two thousand and thirteen moved into my current role, uh, which is uh, working in a not-for-profit context, working with a huge variety of stakeholders to try to ensure that the world moves from from paper to data. That's amazing. Uh, really, really interesting. So when you're running XBRL, how, who owns XBRL and how is it funded? Um, how does that work? Oh, we have a very, very sophisticated business model that you'd be very, very pleased to hear about. What we do is we develop through uh, complex standards-making processes using both uh, very dedicated, very skillful volunteers who are the world's experts in this field, as well as staff, to develop really complicated uh, uh, well, solutions to really complicated problems in a digital way that results in uh, complex specifications, and then we give them away. So I really don't recommend that as a business model. Uh, what we do is uh, we, ha- we have a membership-based organisation. Okay. We have two tiers of membership at a national level in about 20 countries, as well as direct members uh, from around the world. In all in all, in all we have about 650 organisational members that uh, fund our activities. Uh, and that's a, a very positive thing in many contexts, including the fact that there's a, a whole uh, wide uh, group of, of experts right around the world that are really interested in this issue of, of digitization of reporting. After all, every other aspect of our lives have uh, moved to digital. We all rely on, uh, on our mobile phones and our computers and everything else for almost every aspect of our lives. The idea that reporting... Uh, could not and should not also be digital is kind of ridiculous. For a long time, it took us a while to to explain that to people. Um, but these days, that's something that is happening very, very quickly right around the world. And it is becoming table stakes for disclosure. Disclosure needs to be digital to be relevant and to be consumed by both the, uh, the large data providers and uh, investment groups, by uh, other users, by issuers themselves, companies themselves, uh, and, and of course, by, uh, you know, academics and, and, and indeed uh, the accounting profession. Mm. So that's, uh, that's a welcome change, but it is something that takes a long time. One of the things that I noticed about this particular field a long time ago is that we're dealing with a fairly conservative set of professions. We're dealing yeah. with regulators, we're dealing with accountants and auditors, uh, we're dealing with uh, accountants in industry, uh, the, the CFOs and controllers and all the mm-hmm. people working in that context. Uh, and those people are dealing with other people's money and they take that job seriously and they're not necessarily uh, welcoming with open arms any change in any field because they they are careful. Uh, so it's perhaps not surprising that this is a change that has taken some time and we know that it's not always welcome. Uh, for different mm-hmm. parts of the of that supply chain, um, 
uh, but uh, it makes a really material difference to the manner in which information can be used. Um, and I guess uh, that's what binds together this uh, this global consortium of people that operate uh, in a in a, uh, a very wide community of of interests. So it's not just that we bring together the uh, the accountants or the regulators or the technologists or the vendors or the consultants. We bring all of those people together mm-hmm. in uh, across the information supply chain, if you like, yeah. and that means that uh, people are collaborating. Uh, and the reason that they collaborate to a very large extent is that they are sort of bound together by a combined uh, public interest purpose, and that public interest purpose really is to help improve business performance by improving accountability and transparency mm-hmm. using using digitization. Um, so that that uh, is a pretty specialist thing. Yeah. Um, hey, it's the twenty first century. We're all we, we we're all <laughs> learning to be very specialists, uh, but. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very very interesting and indeed uh, warm community. So I uh, I recommend it to your to your listeners. Excellent, excellent. You just mentioned one one side sentence in passing, which was you know there are some that don't welcome something like this. Um, so who would be someone who doesn't like XPRL? So I think the main uh, levels, the areas of resistance uh, that we encounter are, are mostly uh, to do with lack of education. Almost In almost every environment, we hear uh, uh, complaints or objections or questions from, in particular, regulated companies. Mm-hmm. Hey, I've been doing what I've been doing for many years. I've been providing a PDF to my regulator or mm-hmm. I've been providing, I mean, in some cases, people are still providing paper Physical. regulators, physical paper wow. to their regulators. Um, I mean, that's that's getting less and less common, but it's we still encounter it, uh, you know, pretty frequently. Um, and the idea of needing to move to a digital form uh, creates um, some uncertainty and some questions. And I guess the first and and the most obvious and apparent questions are: surely this is going to cost me an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one particular uh, quite large corporate in Europe who declared in a public forum that, you know, this change would cost them 100 million euro. Oh, wow. Um, These days, uh, they report um, studiously and effectively and with high quality to their regulator and to the markets using, uh, in in the ESEF, uh, that's the European Mm -hmm. Single Electronic Format mandate for public companies that have to provide their financial statements today and their sustainability statements tomorrow to uh, their regulators, and I think it costs them about 8,000 euro a year. So uh, considering that this provides a massive expansion in the utility of the information that they're providing to their their investors and the other market participants, it seems a pretty small price to pay compared to the literally millions that they spend every year on uh, every aspect of their external regulated disclosures. Uh, the digitization process um, does cause that sort of concern about cost. And, and often it's, uh, it's what uh, IBM famously calls FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt, um, uh, which, which tends to spread around whenever there's going to be a change. So we do get that concern. Mm-hmm. You also get a more subtle concern, um, but I think everybody on this uh, can, can understand it. Um, some companies uh, are concerned that Transparency is good for some users, but it isn't always good for them. 
wait a minute, this will make it easier for people to compare me to my competitors. There are areas where I'm not doing so well. I'm not so interested in that. So those are understandable and frequent objections that you see around the world. Uh, It is one of the reasons why uh, within our environment we tend to track mandates rather than voluntary frameworks. There are plenty of voluntary frameworks, but they're Mm -hmm. far less effective than the mandates, which is what we concentrate on. Oh, I get that. So if we can go like into a company that needs to or that wants to implement the XBRL standard into their financial reporting, what does it actually have to do if it just costs $8,000? It can't be that difficult. Can you just uh, explain to, to me how that is done? So there are, there are um, two broadly different ways of doing it. Um, the, uh, the easy way and uh, the more effective way. Mm-hmm. So the easy way involves uh, just doing what you've always done. Here's mm-hmm. my PDF. I'm happy with the controls that go into that. I'm happy with the, everything that has uh, resulted in my uh, draft disclosure that I'm just about ready to send off to my regulator. Mm-hmm. Oh, but now instead of sending a PDF, the regulators tell me that I have to send it in a digital form. Yeah. I have to turn it into a web page and whether it's a fact being a number, like mm-hmm. in the face financials or in a metric in a sustainability disclosure, or whether it's a narrative, so a piece of text, I need to put some tags either side of it. I need to put uh, a barcode, if you like, either side of that fact. Uh, And you do so in such a fashion as that that's not visible to the human reader of that web page, but a computer looking at that web page can say, oh, look, this, this, this number or this piece of text has been tagged and you know, it might be profit. So mm-hmm. it's being tagged with profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, a, and a computer can consume that just as a, as, a, as, a, as a human can consume it because they're literally looking at the same number. If the number is 1 million euro, the human can read 1 million euro. The computer reads exactly the same 1 mm-hmm. comma or 1, you know, 1, zero, zero, one million. <laughs> sometimes that's in commas, sometimes that's got decimals, depending yeah. on uh, your, your environment. Um, but either way, uh, that, that is information that can be directly consumed by the computer. And uh, so, so that markup can be done by software that uses a combination uh, of AI and then questions to the, uh, uh, to, to the management hey, I think this might be profit. Is this profit? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Okay, good. Um, and then that, that those things get constructed. Um, and, and that's very much after the piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, the advantage of that process is that it's very light touch for the, uh, for the, for the preparation team, for the, for the controller and her staff. They need to do uh, the minimum. Uh, the uh, other approach and in... Uh, certain markets we see that this is an approach that's taking over is to ensure that that uh, markup is done quite early on in the piece and that the uh, process is is, uh, machine-to-machine consumable. So it's pretty much coming out of the consolidation tool and then uh, going through into the rest of the preparation of the financials, which often involves pulling information, you know, from lots of people around the organisation as well as external folk like actuaries and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, other external experts. Um, and that process is a, is a pretty manual one. Uh, putting that into a disclosure management tool, as we call it, um, is, uh, is a way of improving and lowering the risk associated with those disclosures 
It uh, means you really have end-to-end integrity in a very provable way, so it's improving controls. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, that's a change, and yep. uh, companies aren't necessarily going to embrace that change uh, overnight. So that's, that's, we see that as something of a maturity curve, if you like. People tend to start off simple, and then they say, well, wait a minute, is there a better way of doing this? And, and typically there is, which isn't to say that there's anything wrong with that the after-the-fact or bolt-on approach. Uh, it works perfectly well. Uh, but companies do need to realise that this is the information that data providers are consuming, that investors are consuming directly, and very much the smart money, the, 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 the uh, more sophisticated investors tend to be the first to be consuming this information. Mm-hmm. So if they want to make sure that that information is be con- going to be consumed uh, in, uh, in, in the way they want it to be consumed, they need to take responsibility for, for the way that they're, they're uh, providing those, those financial disclosures or, or indeed sustainability disclosures going forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, so we'll come to the sustainability disclosures in a moment. But uh, just one last uh, information on XBRL that I'm interested in. In terms of your adoption, you said it's about 200 regulators that, that have adopted it. How many companies are reporting against it? And is there a divide between uh, different markets that you, that you see? Or is it just kind of universally adopted now? It's not yet universal, no. Uh, there's there's uh, plenty more uh, adoption to occur around, around the world. Within the securities uh, uh, regulators, the largest markets all mandate the use of XBRL to varying degrees, sometimes mm-hmm. for sort of everything um, or in other cases, the desire to move to everything. Yeah. At a very interesting uh, meeting uh, two weeks ago in Mumbai, and we had the uh, SEBI chair, that's the securities regulator in India, talk mm-hmm. to her, to her, one of our gatherings. And I thought what she said was really, really makes sense, okay. uh, which is that she's not interested in ease of transmission in disclosure. Hey, okay. I produced a PDF and I threw it over the wall. No, she's interested in ease of consumption and ease of comparison, mm-hmm. which is another way of saying that even though they already collect huge amounts of information in an experimental format in, in India, they are moving to continue and, and accelerate that. Now, we see uh, the volume comes from business registrars and to a lesser extent tax authorities that use the standard to collect very large amounts of information from very large numbers of private companies. We think mm-hmm. there's an excess of 20 million companies each year that provide XBRL to their regulators or their tax authority or whoever it is that they provide that, they're obliged to provide that information to. Many of them have no clue that they do that at all. It mm-hmm. happens in their software behind the scenes. Uh, and all that means is that the information is more consumable by those that need to consume that information. Uh, for others, it is something that uh, you know takes up some some management cycle because hey this is this is uh, regulated information going to a securities regulator you need to be careful with it and that that process uh, is a little bit more more obvious um, in other environments like central banking uh, where they collect extraordinary quantities of of pretty granular information mm-hmm. uh, the standard is used because it provides simple ways of providing multi-dimensional disclosure these really complicated multi-dimensional templates that central banks uh, live and breathe by. Uh, that's how they decide about the health of their financial system overall and individual companies. But um, the complexity there isn't the XBRL, the complexity there is sourcing. How do I mm-hmm. find this very complicated intersection of information, which is another area which is uh, uh, where the standard gets used. It's amazing. So... Earlier you mentioned, you know, like if you have data points that are, you know, similar but slightly different, 
there's a ton of problems coming out of that. And um, there is a lot of sustainability regulation coming up at the moment. And what I'm hearing in the market is that's exactly one of the big problems in sustainability reporting at the moment. Could you talk a little bit about sustainability reporting, that problem, how XPRL can help there? Um, would, you mind, would you mind doing that? Not at all. Um, so this is a really important problem. Uh, I think everybody's aware that in, in a lot of markets, uh, there's been an awful lot of voluntary disclosure in mm -hmm. the sustainability space, whether that be climate-related or much broader, uh, for about the last 20 years. But it's been using, uh, first of all, voluntarily developed standards uh, that are not mandatory or very seldom are mandatory mm -hmm. uh, for different market participants. Um, and and people call it the alphabet soup. You know, there's, this, there's yeah. something like 200 plus of these different requirements in different parts of the world. Yes. Uh, and some of them are competing. Um, you know, I use this standard, you use this standard. Well, how am I supposed to compare them? It's very hard. So uh, since about 2019, there's been uh, a huge push to rationalise that and improve it. Uh, and it would be great to say that we've gone from an alphabet soup to a, uh, to a single flavour, but we're not quite there yet. We have okay. more of a bouillon, a concentrated broth. Um, <laughs> so in, uh, we, we've gone from, from um, a couple of hundred different, different environments to three really important ones, um, uh, and they all arose almost concurrently, all trying to solve this problem Uh, but perhaps there's some water to go under the bridge before they themselves can be rationalised. So mm -hmm. we've got a European framework being developed by EFRAG, uh, the, uh, the, the group that has for many years advised the European Commission uh, about uh, the utility and, and, and adoptability of IFRS accounting standards. Mm -hmm. They are now developing their own sustainability standards for Europe, the so-called ESRSs. Mm -hmm. uh, and the new draft, the latest draft of that just went live uh, last week. Um, I'm sure lots of your listeners are very familiar with those. If not, they really need to be. These are a very substantial new set of requirements that cover uh, an awful lot of ground. They cover mm -hmm. uh, not just the economic impact of climate and other sustainability uh, aspects on the company, yes. but the impact of the company on the rest of the world, so-called double materiality. Uh, so that's one very important framework. The second very important framework is being developed by the IFRS Foundation under its new International Sustainability Standards Board, or ISSB. Uh, that happened, for those of us used to the, uh, the way that the IFRS works, at absolutely lightning speed. Um, the, <laughs> the, 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 the ISSB was constructed incredibly quickly. They've got draft standards in the, uh, in, for, for some general requirements and for sustainability. Uh, out there in draft, uh, they had more than 3,000 comment letters that came in during the course of this year. And early in the new year, we can expect that that brand new sustain, uh, standards board will publish their first standards. Now, they're not the same as the ESRSs. Mm -hmm. uh, at the, then the third pillar is the SEC. Uh, and uh, everyone would probably appreciate that the SEC is a little bit constrained about what it can do in this area. Uh, and in particular, it doesn't have legislation that permits it to outsource standard setting to a third party like the ISSB or even that's domestic FASB 
uh, environment. Uh, so they have devised their own rules mm-hmm. that just cover climate. Um, we expected a rule in that area in the new year, uh, but that's another complex and dynamic space and we'll wait to see what happens in terms of exactly what those uh, rules end up looking like. However, um, you're right. We have this, uh, in my mind, this echo of, of problems past. There are going to be many companies that have to report in the United States, in Europe and in, say, in Japan or in, in, in many other countries mm-hmm. that might adopt the ISSB standards. Uh, there is this push to try to ensure that the ISSB and the ESRSs, uh, the, the European Standards Board in this, in this area, uh, can align. Um, but for a variety of reasons, they've both got very tight timelines about what they need to do. So um, we may be in a situation where we have some unfortunate disparities in that area. Mm-hmm. From an XBRL perspective, we've been concerned about this problem for some time, not just the comparability issues, but also the fact that if uh, different environments go about encapsulating uh, their requirements in XBRL in different ways, mm-hmm. it will make it harder for people that need to consume that information. It'll also make it harder for people need to prepare information mm-hmm. in multiple contexts. Um, that process is, uh, is something that is um, uh, being looked at by mm-hmm. the standard setters together in, a, in an environment that we facilitate. Uh, we meet every fortnight to go through and and look at the areas where uh, different architectures or different modelling decisions could impact uh, the way that people put together this information. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that the digital representation of all of this data and in almost every environment, the call in this new sustainability field is that as we move to mandatory sustainability disclosure, mm-hmm. it must be digital first. Um, uh, that means that the consistency in this area and comparability to the maximum extent possible is very important. That said, when it comes down to it, these are policymaker decisions about actual comparability. It needs to be the standard setters themselves that say, yes, this thing in that in in in, in this environment is the same as that in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, where we, I think, most people understand that there's a huge amount of focus on that. A uh, huge amount of focus by. IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Regulators, by the G7 and the G20, uh, by, the, uh, by, by the most senior levels of the European Commission, uh, for example, um, to try to ensure that we do end up with consistency in this area. Uh, but there's some water to go under the bridge before this can be simplified and improved for, uh, for issuers and mm-hmm. for users. Um, we... we we, we definitely will have huge amounts of sustainability information that's going to arrive in a mandatory manner. Uh, that's a massive change for companies. Companies have been used to providing sustainability information as a communications function. Yeah. Uh, and it's not managed under the auspices of the CFO or the, or the audit committee. But increasingly, that's exactly where it's going to end up, at least the responsibility for it is going to end up, mm-hmm. with new systems, new processes, and in particular, new controls around yeah. the way that that information is collected and, 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 and published. And it will be in the forefront of the minds of, of uh, senior management and the board. And as a result, uh, you know, the entire organisation is going to take it much more seriously. So... This is another one of those changes where uh, um, this, is, this is being provided by regulation, but um, it's, it's, it's pretty substantial. So mm. uh, 
there's there's lots of work for for lots of people in this in this area for the for the next few years. Mm-hmm. And if I may, probably one last uh, uh, question. Looking at the time, um, all of that new data that is um, coming up there and needs to be reported digitally and needs to kind of talk to each other, is there a need for a, a market data infrastructure that people can you know just go to one place and get it out of, or is that something that that we don't need? <laughs> so. This is one of three really big problems that we're very interested in, and uh, it's 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 certainly something to get people up in the morning. Um, today we have, uh, as as everybody knows, there are a variety of commercial solutions to accessing information about uh, public companies and indeed private companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they work very well in very large markets. Uh, they work less well in smaller markets. Uh, they work less well in markets where, I'm sorry to say, as the native English speaker on this call, uh, where the disclosures are not made in English. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what you see, even in quite substantial markets, is first of all um, a delay in access to fundamental information, so information that's provided in in financial statements or in sustainability reports, uh, accessing that information can take some time. The quality of that information can be quite variable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, if you're in a smaller market, this question of of discoverability and access is a really, really pressing one. You're interested in uh, not just ensuring that... um, uh, you know, traditional capital formation functions operate. So you want to attract investors from around the world to your market. Mm-hmm. But you're also interested in ensuring that uh, companies have access to uh, debt, that companies have access to customers, that, access, that companies have access to suppliers. Yes. And uh, these disclosures are a very important part of the trust framework. Mm-hmm. So um, if that information is hard to come by, and in enormous, I mean, in the majority of markets, it really is hard to come by. Uh, accessing it in a timely fashion is difficult. Sometimes accessing it at all mm-hmm. can be difficult or you'll have extraordinarily summarised information. Yeah. Um, so ensuring that the reports that are provided by companies in the way that those companies provide them is accessible is, we think, one of the really, really important questions here. Mm-hmm. In the sustainability field, it's particularly important to um, large emerging markets, Mm -hmm. uh, countries which uh, are hugely populous, um, very important from the the perspective of uh, the the, the climate equation, both in terms of the the, the manner in which those economies operate and uh, the impact that the companies in that economy can have in terms of supply chains uh, around the the rest of the world. all of that information needs to be much more accessible than it is today. I personally don't believe in a uh, single large database in the sky. I think that's a more complicated problem than uh, can be solved because of a huge variety of of, uh, commercial and policy uh, constraints Mm. in in different parts of the world. But I really do think that we... uh, uh, we are living in the 21st century and the idea that we don't know what has been reported where and when um, is a problem that we can and we should be solving. Um, so it's kind of an adjunct question to yeah. digital disclosure. 
but it is a really important one and one that I hope that more and more people will be concentrating on in the next uh, few years just to try to ensure that all the work that goes into those uh, disclosures uh, is, is, is maximised in terms of consumption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we see a similar world, you know, like, um, as you said, there will be not one big database that, that is kind of, you know, all singing, all dancing for everybody. But we see a network of those different databases that are set up in a similar fashion as, you know, XBRL, you know, like market infrastructure, like water, like waste, like electricity, in a way that it provides a service to, to, the, to the global community of people that need this information. And um, so we also see that basically we are we are in, in in line with that thinking. Yeah, and and this is a really important problem for people to be tackling. Uh, it seems kind of simple, right? Oh, it's just yeah. it's just a little bit of our infrastructure. Very um, hard, very hard to do. Do an experiment. Go and discover, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, electrical component manufacturers that are listed uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, that's a tough ask. Yeah. But uh, it's good. A lot of people are working on this, as we know. And um, probably leave it at that. Um, you, you mentioned a lot of important problems to solve. Um, your contribution there is invaluable. Um, a lot of people on the streets will not know XBRL, but uh, are kind of you know, benefiting from it. Um, so, so I really have to thank you for, for, for what you do and also for your time uh, to, to be in that podcast. Thank you so much, John. Andreas, thanks very much for the opportunity. And I hope everybody has a great day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Cheers. This is the end of today's episode, but stay tuned. Many more interesting topics are yet to come. And don't forget to hit the follow button to never miss a new and exciting episode of our podcast, Important Problems.